I invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 1. We're continuing a series that we started just two weeks ago uh, where I gave an overview of the book, and today we're just going to look at chapter 1 of this book, uh, looking at what happens when we just do what's right in our own eyes. Uh, the biggest problem we looked at lat two weeks ago, the biggest problem in any culture is not pagans behaving like pagans, it is Christians, God's people acting like pagans. Now, we like to speak of the sovereignty of God around these parts, and that is indeed a most important doctrine. But sometimes, the emphasis on the sovereignty of God can be an excuse for God's people to not try their hardest. Now, the sovereignty of God says that God works out everything after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11, and sometimes people just go, well, if that's how it is, then God will do his thing and I can just kind of sit and watch it happen. Uh, and instead of being white-hot worshipers of the living God, we're tempted to become the proud, frozen chosen. Uh, we reason that God's sovereignty is going to work all things out, so why try too hard? Uh, this, of course, is a huge misunderstanding of God's mighty power. Uh, God wants us to obey Him fully. And some of you may have already thought, well, I've already blown that. Well, welcome to the club. We all have. And part of the reason why the book of Judges is here is that we'll see ourselves in all our frailties and failures, and we see that God still has a plan that he uses us for, his kingdom. Um, knowing stuff about God is no excuse for our spiritual laziness. Just because you know things that God is sovereign does not mean that you by that then conclude, well, then I can just kind of sit back and let him work. That was the problem in the, the parable that Jesus told, the parable of the talents. Remember? The one guy says, I knew you were a hard taskmaster, and so I buried my talent in the ground. The, the idea of knowing something about God that draws you to a wrong conclusion is a wrong way to approach it. We can avoid a ton of grief and enjoy amazing blessing from God if we heed the lesson that we will examine this morning. What is it that happens when we really seek God? What happens when we do not serve him as the king that he really is? This is the topic of Judges chapter 1. And before we dive in here, while there is much in Judges that feels hopeless, I believe that this is a book of great hope. Uh, the fact that it's here and we read it and we go, man, that was a mess, and that Israel still existed and thrived, and that it's still a part of God's program, and that when Jesus returns, there's still a place for the nation of Israel and for God's people throughout all ages to have a part of this being citizens of God's kingdom is tremendous hope. Despite our sin, despite much weakness, God does 
amazing things with so little. This book is a little bit like Jesus' multiplication of the loaves and the fishes, except that what gets multiplied is eternal impact by tiny human obedience. So, we're going to read Judges chapter 1. I'll give you a couple of things in advance. It's a long chapter, and we're going to stand for it. So, you know, you're getting your workout this morning. Um, we, it, we read long portions of Scripture here from time to time at East White Oak, and I will tell you, it is because we believe in the power of God's Word there's more that's going to happen here in God's word than will happen in all my words, okay? So just understand that. The second thing is that this passage has a lot of words that are hard to pronounce. So what I'm going to do is just confidently say them and you'll think that I know how to pronounce them, okay? Fair enough? Let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Judges chapter 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the, the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now, the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriat Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriat Sefer. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriat Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Otniel, the, Can the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you set me in the land of the Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Akron, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. 
And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we'll deal kindly with you. And, they sh- and he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bashan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Achlab or Achzeb or Helba or of Afik or of Rehov. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beit Anat. For they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh and of Beit Anat became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Heres, in Ayalon, and in Sha'albim, but the hand of the Lord, uh, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran for the ascent of Akrabim from Sela and upward. Please have a seat. And everybody, <sighs> we can sit down now. Where are we going to go with this? Aren't you excited to think about where are we going to take this? Let's look at verse 1. Training of the next generation leaders is essential. Training of next generation leaders is essential. Verse 1 begins after the death of Joshua. Now, Joshua was the man that Moses had picked out to succeed him. And Joshua had done a remarkable job. In about a seven-year period of time, they had taken care of the major conquest of the land. All that was left was for the individual tribes to kind of clean up in taking over cities and such. And, And so Joshua had done a remarkable job, but there was one thing Joshua left undone. He did not leave a successor. He did not raise up next generation leadership. And as a result, whenever there is a gap in leadership from one generation to the next, whether it's in a a family or in a church or in a society, there's going to be some suffering. What's going to happen is that people are going to say, well, wait, man, we need some leaders around here. And what they do is they look around for how do other people do it? And that's what happened. Israel said, well, how do other nations do it? They got a king. We want to have a king. 
So that's going to be the long-term consequence of failure to train up the next generation of leaders. But more immediately what happened was without any leadership, everybody goes, well, I'll just do what I do and you do what you do and you do what you do. And that's kind of the theme of our whole study here. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the training of next generation leaders is essential. The next line in verse one is the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Now, let's be careful that we don't read too much or too little into this. This inquiring of the Lord does not mean that they were super spiritual and that they spent all this time in prayer as much as it was that they consulted what were called Urim and Thummim, and we don't even know how they work. We don't even know what they looked like, but they were some device by which Israel could find out what God's will was. And it ended up becoming, in some ways, a kind of a, a magic eight ball kind of thing, which is why it, we don't have Urim and Thummim today, right? And to try to discern God's will in those kinds of ways can end up taking you astray. Here, it's actually a good thing. They're looking for guidance and God actually uses it to give them guidance. So that's not entirely a wrong thing, but what I do want to say is that we ought to be careful about how much we draw out from that in terms of how that applies to our own world. Now you think, okay, he has spent all this time on verse 1 how long is this sermon going to go? And the answer is not as long as you think. Uh, The next line, the next point is verses 2 through 18, okay? So we're going to move a little faster now. Commitment to the Lord brings success, but it requires an all-out effort. Commitment to the Lord brings success, but it requires an all-out effort, Um, there isn't going to be any working in isolation. And that's something that's very easy for us Americans to do, isn't it? To think of our individual Christian lives as living in isolation, apart from community with one another. And it means that we're going to end up having areas of failure when that happens. It requires the importance of connection. So look what happens. Judah says to his brother Simeon, the tribes are speaking to one another, and the tribe of Judah says, tribe of Simeon, you help us take care of our territory, and we'll help you, we'll help you take care of your territory. Uh, that not working in isolation is something that brought them success. And I think that we need to think about that in terms of our church ministries as well. That it's easy for us to think that they're working in isolation. Like we have uh, adult small group ministry in this cone and we have youth ministry in this cone and children's ministry in this cone and never the, the, the three ever meet up or anything like that. It, no, they're all working in concert with one another. And where there's one that is successful, that means everything succeeds. And when there's one that fails, it means there's a recognition of failure on the part of all. And there's no working in isolation. Commitment to the Lord brings success, but it requires 
an all-out effort that involves working in conjunction with one another. Now, in verses 5 through 7, we have this very strange story of part of Judah's battles. They fight the Canaanites and the Perizzites. They defeat them at a place called Bezek, and there's a guy named Adonai Bezek. It just means the master of Bezek. That's what Adonai Bezek means. And they fight him, and they defeat him, and he runs away, but they capture him. And then, bizarrely to us, they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. What in the world is happening with this? In order to understand it, you got to understand how the ancient Near East works. If you don't do anything to your enemy when you defeat him, he will come back to bite you. So you have to figure out a way to make sure that the problem goes away and stays away. Um, I was just reading this week in my reading through the Bible in the year, uh, the story of Ahab and a Syrian, there was a Syrian king that came to fight against him and Ahab, the Lord gave Ahab, King Ahab of Israel, the victory, but he didn't do anything bad to the king of Syria. He didn't stop him. He just said, oh, my brother. And the king of Syria says, oh, my brother. And they're all friends and they start, they establish bazaars and uh, all kinds of trade and all of that. And then a few years later, Syria conquers Israel because he didn't take care of the problem, see. And when you cut off people's thumbs and big toes, what happens? They're not able to do stuff like fight in war. And Adonai Bezek says this. He says, I've done this to 70 kings, and now I'm getting my payback from the Lord. He acknowledges that it's Israel's God has repaid him. Um, now, beginning at verse 8, we have this description of how they were able to take parts of the land uh, by these tribes, particularly uh, we begin with the men of Judah. Uh, and if we're going to be able to do that, I think we're going to need a, a map. Very good. You are well trained, church. A map. So here's a map of the whole area of Israel. And we're going to go in detail here as we make our way through this text. Uh, what's going to happen is we're going to look at this hill country, this lowland area, and this Negev. And then a little later in the message, we'll be looking up here in the north, okay? So we're going to start down here in the south, and then we're going to make our way to the middle, and then we're going to end up in the north, okay? That's kind of how the passage takes us. So, um, it says in verse 8, uh, the men of Judah captured Jerusalem. That's this little circle right here, okay? The little circle. And then it says um, that in verse 10, they went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron, and they took Hebron, and that's this little circle right here. And then it says in verse 11, from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir, and that's 
this little circle right here. So you see they are taking these major city outposts up high in the hill country. It's about 3,000 feet elevation, pretty tough terrain, and uh, they are taking those major cities in the hill country. And then there's this summary that you see in verse uh, 9. The men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country. That's this big circle here. They're taking on the hill country. And in the Negev, that's the southern kind of desert region, very flat. It gets enough rain to have a crop about once every 10 years. There's some beautiful psalms about the Negev. And then it says the lowlands, which in Hebrew is the word shvelah, so some of your translations may not even say lowland. It may say shvelah. But that's this region here, which is the, the lowlands between the coast off to the left and the hill country to the right. <clears throat> so what's going on? The tribe of Judah, along with in conjunction with her brother Simeon, are taking over this mini region of Israel. And one thing that happens is that as the author is writing this for people who were reading it hundreds of years later, he's going to explain how some names have changed. Because people will go, wait a minute, was that Debir? Or I thought the name of that town was Kiryat Sefer. And another one, well, I thought, it was, I thought the, the name of this town was Kiryat Arba. And no, it's Hebron. And so trying to figure that out, the author throws in some of these ways in which the, uh, um, the area, the place names had changed. So you have... Um, Verse 10, they went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiryat Arba. Verse 11, the name of Debir was formerly Kiryat Sefer. Verse 23, uh, the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. It's just kind of helping the reader to connect that some of these cities went by different names. Now in verses 10 through 15, you have this interesting story of Caleb who says, hey, I want somebody to take this town of Debir, that's the bottom little tiny circle on our map, and he says, anybody that takes it, captures it, I'll give my daughter in marriage. And his brother uh, captures it, and so Caleb gives uh, his daughter Oxa to him as a wife. And Here's what's really fascinating about this whole region of this southern hill country. Do you remember in Numbers 13, God sent out 12 spies to spy out the land? You remember that? And there were two spies that brought back a good report, Joshua and Caleb. <clears throat> and there were 10 that brought back a bad report. There's giants up there. We can't take it. And so they didn't. And then God said, well, because you disobeyed me, you're going to wander around for 40 years in the wilderness until everybody dies except the two spies that brought the good report, Joshua and Caleb. Uh, everybody 20 years of age and older is going to die. So you're basically wandering around the wilderness for funerals to happen. And, and when the last person died, then they were able to go into the promised land. Now, fast forward... They're in the promised land. Caleb is now 80-some years old, 
And he goes to this very spot where he had spied out. Out of all the land of Israel, he's at the, the very spot where he'd spied out and said, there's giants up there. And that's the area that he conquers. That's the area that his brother conquers. It's the area that is filled with giants. And it's even recorded here in verse 20. Do you see it? Hebron was given to Caleb as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. The Anakim were the giants. He drove them out, got rid of them. You know. I want you to notice also the economic free enterprise in these exchanges. Get my you get my daughter for a wife with the land allotments, and then the daughter further negotiates with her dad for some water rights. He, she says, look, you gave me this, oops, you gave me this, uh, you gave me this Negev. It doesn't have any water in it. How about some springs, you know? And so Caleb gives her the upper and lower springs to be able to have uh, watering privileges. Then in verse 18, we move away from the hill country and this Negev. Verse 18, we move to the coast. <clears throat> Let me. Verse 18 says, Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. This Gaza is the same Gaza that's in the news today. It, this territory has been fought over for centuries. I think it's going to be fought over until Jesus comes back. It's just a... But Judah was able to capture those cities. That's a pretty big, big order when you think of success because taking these cities on the coastal plain is not an easy thing, as we'll see in just a second. Now, commitment to the Lord brings success, but it requires an all-out effort. Now, verses 19 and 20. There are some things that are beyond our control. And, but even that doesn't mean we give up trying. In verse 19, we're introduced to a technological issue. Judah could not take possession of the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. So <clears throat> what's happening is that the people of, of Judah are up here in the hill country, and they were not able to take a lot of this area of the plains because the people in the plains had a technological advantage. They had iron chariots, and Judah didn't have iron chariots. They didn't even know how to make iron. And so there's this, this problem that they couldn't do it. They could, that, now, chariots don't work up in the hill country. The mountainous terrain and rocky, and the, it, the chariots are meaningless up there. But boy, down on the plain, that's where you'd want, want them, and, Israel, and Judah's enemies have them, but they don't. And so they're not able to take it. They don't possess the best technology. But notice, verse 20, the Lord was still with them, and they take the giants that they thought had been impossible to, to defeat. And in verses 22 through 26, you have this interesting story that uses people's ambitions to advance God's cause. Look at how there's the house of jo Joseph is scouting out Bethel. That's this this city right up here. 
and, and they see spy, they, the spies saw a man coming out of the city and they say, hey, show us the way into the city. And so he shows them. Um, and so when they strike the city, they let the man and all his family go. Kind of like the story of Rahab in Joshua. It's a very similar story. And the man leaves there and he goes way, way up north to the Hittite country and he founds a city and he calls the city by the same name as his old city. The name of Bethel used to be the name of Luz and he, rena- he names his new city after his old city, the name of Luz. So this, this story of technology is interesting because sometimes we think of a, of a situation where technologically we're out of control. Anybody ever feel out of control technologically? Okay, one or two of you. And we, and we think, there is my excuse. I don't have to fully obey because the technology failed me. Right there, Judges chapter 1. Uh, all success in the work of the Lord can be derailed by half-hearted obedience. This is our last point. Up to this point, we've had some pretty good success. A few failures, you know, the iron chariots and all that, but now we're going to run into a whole tale, a long story actually, of failure after failure after failure. All success in the work of the Lord can be derailed by half-hearted obedience. We need to look at the geography of what didn't get done. In verse 21, the uh, city of Jerusalem didn't get conquered. You might say, well, wait a minute. I thought back in verse 8 it says that they were conquered. Well, yeah, they were, but then they got unconquered. (laughs) That's kind of what happens in the Middle East, right? And so they conquered it, and then they got unconquered. The Jebusites took it back over. It wasn't permanently taken. Verses 27 and 28, this is very interesting. This is a description of all of the cities that are right along here, okay? It says that Beit Shan, that's this city, wasn't taken. And then the next one is Tanakh, uh, didn't get taken. That's uh, this city right here. And then Dor, which is over here on the coast, it didn't get taken. And Iblim didn't get taken. And Megiddo didn't get taken. All of these cities represent approaches from the coast through this Jezreel Valley that lead up to Mesopotamia. It is the major trade routes, okay, that lead from Egypt to Mesopotamia. If you want to be wealthy, you got to take these cities. You got to take them. And they were, uh, they couldn't, they didn't do it. They, they were half-hearted in their obedience and they did not take these cities. Uh, Why is that important? Well, uh, some of you may know this Jezreel Valley by another name as it's found in Revelation. Uh, It's called uh, the Valley of the Mount of Megiddo, the Valley of Armageddon. It's a a valley that is where there's going to be one great last battle in the, the world stage. And this valley has been of 
extreme importance all through human history. There was a pharaoh that lived around 1450 BC, so we're talking 3,500 years ago, who said the taking of Megiddo, the town of Megiddo, is like the taking of a thousand cities. That's how much value he placed on capturing the approaches that go in and out of this valley. And, and Israel failed in its obedience, did not take those approaches. <clears throat> the important gateway city of Gezer, verse 29, that's this town right here, along this major road, this international highway, was not conquered. Verses 30 to 32, Upper Galilee, those are all cities mentioned uh, up in Upper Galilee, were not conquered. Verse 33, more Upper Galilee. Verses 34 to 36, the tribe of Dan's allotment was down here, but all of the Canaanites pushed them way up into the hill country, and they weren't able to live in their tribal allotment. They're pushed back up into the hill country. And so this international highway that Dan could have gotten very wealthy from, they, they couldn't do it. What's going on? Personal desire colliding with difficulties. That's what's happening. They have a desire to conquer. They have a desire to do what God wanted them to do but it collides with difficulties. And what happens when personal desire collides with difficulties? Sometimes you just give up, don't you? You just think, well, it's not wor that worth it to me. It, ah, we'll just trust that God's sovereign and he'll take care of this. We, we give up. We're half-hearted in our obedience. When personal desire collides with difficulties, half-hearted obedience is easy to justify. And look at what they do. Instead of taking those cities, what they do is they enslave those people so that they get economic success without the full obedience to the Lord. Look at verse 28. They put the Canaanites to forced labor but did not drive them out completely. Look at verse 30. The Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Look at verse 33. The nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh and of Beit Anat became subject to forced labor for them. Verse 35. The hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them and they became subject to forced labor. They're like, hey, if we can't take them, we'll just make slaves out of them. That'll be fine enough, right? How many of us will justify our half-hearted obedience by saying, well, what, my alternative is just as good as God's. I, I don't know why it wouldn't be like, this wouldn't be okay. And then there is the moral compromise by having the Canaanites living among them. Look at verse 21. The Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Verse 27, the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Verse 29, the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Verse 30, the Canaanites lived among them. 
Verse 32, so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. And verse 33, the inhabitants, uh, it says, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Now, why is that bad? You come into a land and you make slaves out of some of the people, and then they sometimes get away from their slavery, but they're all still living there. What are you going to do? You intermarry. You join in their, their religious practices. In fact, the Canaanites are reasoning with the Israelites. They're going, you know, the reason why you're not really succeeding agriculturally is, yeah, your God got you out of Egypt. He's a good God that way. But the God here is Baal, and you got to worship Baal too. So worship God and Baal, and things will be good for you. And so the Israelites ended up being disloyal to the Lord, their God, by saying, we'll just add a little bit of Baalism to our lives too. And frankly, the religious practices of the Canaanites and their sexual immorality of demonstrating fertility so that the fertility of the land would be upon them is something that was pretty attractive to the Israelites. Moral compromise. So think about this. Personal desire colliding with difficulties leads to half-hearted obedience. Economic success but with slave labor. What a horror. Moral compromise by living with the Canaanites. Technological inferiority, agricultural ignorance, and they don't even know where the water is. Now, they came from a place in Egypt that was all produced by irrigation. When they come into this land, it's all by rainfall. They don't know how to do it. And besides, all the old people in Israel had died before they ever got into the land. They don't know what they're doing. So rather than looking to the Lord, what do they do? They look for the people around them. And they buy into their worldview. They buy into their system. Now, what's the big point I'm making? Sometimes the Christian life is hard. Obedience can be painful. You bear a price for it. The people around you saying, you don't have to bear that price. You don't have to do any of that. It's a lot more fun over this way. And you think, well, yeah, I'll still worship the Lord, but I'll also go this way a little bit. It's more fun. It's okay. It's, it's not that bad. Before long, we find ourselves in the very same place that the people of Israel found themselves in the days of the judges. Everyone doing whatever was right in their own eyes. I really don't know what the post-COVID world will look like. But I think it will be different. I think it will be more hostile to Christianity. I think there will be less common ground as people seek to find their comfortable crowd. You know, you're looking for your tribe, you know, and you'll find it, uh, whether it's online or somewhere else, right? It's just here that we believers have hope. And here's how. God uses small things and little people. The people of Israel in the first half of this chapter, they're small and little, and yet they accomplish some amazing things in the hand of the Lord. So God uses small things and 
little people. He'll use you. Secondly, I was reading a book this week uh, by Malcolm Gladwell called David and Goliath. It's not a very good interpretation of the David and Goliath story, but he makes some interesting points about one area. He talks about a hit, a near miss, and a remote miss. He was talking about the bombing of London. You know, if the bombs are fallen and they hit you, well, that's the end of you, right? And then there are people that the bomb fell nearby, either horribly damaged them or injured them or something, they survive, and they are traumatized by that event for the rest of their lives. But then there's something that's called a remote miss, which is you live in London, the bombs are falling all around, but none of them ever come close to you. In fact, there were only 40,000 people who died in the city of London during the bombing, and there were over a million people that lived in the city. So for most people, it was a remote miss. And do you know what happened? Unexpectedly, the people who survived in a remote miss of the bombing of London became even more sold out to win the war against the Nazis. Rather than being intimidated by the bombs, they were, let's, let's cut loose for victory. And here's what I want to suggest to you about COVID. Yes, COVID has hit some people and they have died or it's been a, uh, a near miss. They've survived but barely and are troubled. But for most of us, it's a remote miss. And what that should do to every one of us is make us unbelievable in our willingness to sacrifice for the kingdom of God. It should cause a, an, a relentless pursuit of God and his kingdom. It should cause risk-taking unlike we've ever seen in the church of Jesus Christ. It should cause the church to rise up and be a force for the kingdom of God unlike we've ever seen before. And I think that the story of Judges is saying, you know what? Judges is what's happen what happens when you go, well, that's too hard and I want to live an economic prosperous life and I want to compromise with the Canaanites and live that way. Judges says, don't go that way. <laughs> yeah, you've been through a hard thing here, but use it for the glory of God and sacrificing everything you've got now until Jesus comes back for the sake of his kingdom. The lesson of the judges is that when God's people act like pagans, things go horribly. But if we make even small steps of obedience, God will multiply it. Don't be so smart about your knowledge of the sovereignty of God that you become a fool. If you think that God's sovereignty means fatalism or an escape from personal responsibility, the judges says, think again. I'll then leave you with this one last thought. Jesus is our friend. You are not alone. In Judges chapter 1, verse 1, it says that Joshua died after the death of Joshua. Do you know that Jesus' name in Hebrew is Joshua? It's the same name. Joshua, Yeshua, Joshua. 
The Joshua of the Old Testament died and stayed dead, and there was nobody to take his place, and these people are all alone trying to make it the best way they knew how. But the Jesus of the New Testament died and rose again. My friends, we have a friend, we have a friend, we have a captain, we have a king who will lead us to victory. Pray with me. If you've ever used God's sovereignty as an excuse for avoiding hardship and obedience, take it to the Lord right now. Say, Lord, forgive me for that. If you've never partnered with someone in the cause of Christ, consider whom you may partner with to join forces together in making Christ known. If you've never considered what an all-out effort for Christ would look like in your life, ask the Lord for time this week to consider it. What would an all-out effort for Christ look like for me? If you've ever responded when you've been unable to succeed in your ambitions that God must not be with you, would you ask the Lord to forgive you for that? Would you ask the Lord to shape your ambitions so that they may be more in line with Christ and his kingdom? Father, we come to you as we've thought about all those things just now and recognize we have failed you. We've been half-hearted in our obedience because it just got hard. We have personal desire to follow you, but it collided with difficulties and half-hearted obedience was the result. For, forgive us. As we enter into a post-COVID era here, Lord, help us to understand what all-out devotion to you would mean. And that there would be a generation raised up that would make an impact for the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I pray for those who are here, who've never put their faith in Jesus, that they would see that in him is the true king to whom we owe all devotion. You're the God that made everything that we would recognize that our sinful condition means that we're separated from God and that only by faith in Jesus, by trusting in what you did at the cross, Jesus, can we find forgiveness and a place in your kingdom. So, Lord, I pray that we would, each of us, do that and then day by day walk step by step with you. Lord, we're such broken people and there's things that have happened to us that aren't our fault. There's things that have happened to us that are our fault and all of those things combined together to cause us to feel a little bit weak. Not, well, not just a little bit, a lot, weak. <laughs> we feel like we're not ready for this. So God, would you strengthen and pour encouragement into our hearts? 
and help us to be the church here at East White Oak that you want us to be and the individuals that you want us to be as we head out into a whole new world. It won't be like it was. And for that, we thank you because it shook us up to think about what really matters. Revive your church. Revive us, O Lord. And let us do our fighting on our knees. In Jesus' name, amen.